0: Matthew chapter 5, Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. As you guys are getting there, I'll give you a little bit of an explanation of um, our primary teaching methodology at Apologia Church. Um, We like topical messages where topical messages are appropriate, but we believe that for the life and the health, spiritual health and growth of our body, our primary responsibility is to teach you the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? Well, what we want to do as a church is our primary method of teaching is to teach expositionally. That means to go verse by verse, book by book through the Bible. And, and by doing that, we're able to not have you guys be slaves to the whims of the pastor. You know, what bright idea does a pastor have for the next six months here, Right? And, uh, you know, we want to try to avoid that by teaching you the whole counsel of God, going verse by verse. We're able to get you into your entire Bible. That's the primary way that we teach at Apologia Church. So we've been in Matthew for a while. And, uh, and the amazing thing is is that when you go uh, book by book and verse by verse, you get to get all of what god has for his people so the book of matthew you get god's faithfulness his covenant faithfulness you get the message of jesus his promises in the sermon on the mount you get christ talking to you about your anxiety and your worries you see that god keeps his promises and jesus fulfills prophecies you get to get the whole entire picture rather than being a slave to the whims of the pastor and so we're in matthew chapter 5 right now the sermon on the mount and we're in a specific section Matthew 5, 17 onwards through really 20. And uh, I'm going to read it. And you guys can follow with me. Hear now the word of the living God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven thus far as the reading of God's word let's pray father I want to pray you bless now God that you bless us as a church you speak lord through me to your people God help me to faithfully unpack your word I pray God that your word would would uh, cut convict uh, encourage bless transform all of us that God from the smallest in this room To the oldest in this room, we would be changed, Lord, and we would grow to love you more because of what we learn about you here. I pray that you would work, Lord, through me, God, a jar of clay, uh, an easily broken pot, and I just pray that you'd work through me, someone who's not worthy to be up here, and myself, but through faith in Christ has been redeemed. I just pray that you'd, by your spirit, teach today, make your word come alive to us today in Jesus' name, amen. Let's get our bearings, shall we? The gospel, according to Matthew, said a number of times, was the most popular of the gospels in the second century of the church, which is pretty cool. If you think about the fact that Christians were together around this very book in the second century of the church, and it, was the, it was like the favorite. It's what they quoted from the most. So this is very, very significant. And here we are now in the 21st century in uh, Tempe, Arizona, around the same book being changed by the same word, the word of God. And so Matthew is powerful because Matthew really is a book that emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the promised Mashiach, the Messiah that was promised. That's Jesus. He's finally come into history. The plan of God is now right before us, come to fulfillment. We can see that God kept his promises. He is the covenant faithful God. Everything he said has finally come in Jesus. Jesus is not a novelty. Jesus is not a plan B in God's plan. He's what was always anticipated. And Matthew, towards the Jews, is trying to show you, not just explicitly with we're actually quoting verses from the Old Testament, but in showing these shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament, he shows you that Jesus is everything we were expecting And in many ways, in shocking ways that we were not expecting. And this is a powerful thing for us to be able to unpack this book. Matthew chapter 1 opens up and you get into the genealogies. Jesus owns the right to the throne. He is the royal king. He is the Davidic king. He is the one that has the right to be king of the world, of Israel. And so you move through Matthew chapter 1 and it's all about the kingship of Jesus. He's got the right to that throne. Matthew 1 is emphasizing Jesus through Joseph, his adoptive father. Joseph, in Matthew, the early chapters, is shown to be the one who takes Jesus by adoption. He names Jesus. The angel says, call him Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. It's all on Joseph's experience. And so Joseph names Jesus, takes ownership of him. He almost puts Mary away because he knows how babies are made. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 is shown to really follow the pattern that we already know from the Old Testament. So you see Jesus barely escaping with his life. Somebody, a wicked king who's trying to destroy Jesus at birth. Joseph is woken up and he goes into Egypt. Jesus goes with his family into Egypt and goes back now to be raised in Nazareth. Matthew chapter 3 opens up with John the Baptist. Amazingly, listen... They knew that Elijah the prophet was coming before Mashiach. And you might be thinking, John the Baptist, Elijah? Well, Jesus says he is. He, Elijah was the prophet that called Israel to repentance. And that is exactly John the Baptist's task to call Israel to repentance. And when asked about it, Jesus said, John the Baptist was the expected Elijah. The one that calls Israel to repentance. Matthew chapter 3 opens up and here's John the Baptist. And the first words out of his mouth in Matthew 3 are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he immediately starts to warn them about this looming judgment, impending judgment. And he says the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. He tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And significantly, listen, he tells them in Matthew 3, He says, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because he says, God's able to raise up from these stones, heirs of Abraham. And then moving on, he actually is the one that baptizes Jesus. He really anoints him into the ministry. And, and, And in an amazing moment, the father speaks from heaven and says over Jesus before everybody there, he says, this is the son of my love in whom I am well pleased. And then it says the Spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And Jesus, amazing, he's already been part of this pattern. He's the king over Israel. He has the genealogy that matches. And he barely escapes death as a baby. He, fl- he goes into Egypt. And then the story begins to pick up now, and you begin to see Jesus, the true and perfect Israel, goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Same pattern of Israel in the Old Testament. The only problem is Israel in the Old Testament failed miserably to follow God, to keep his word, to keep his law and commandments. And Jesus now, the true and perfect Israel, goes into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. The Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness to do so. And Jesus does in the wilderness what Adam failed to do in the garden and what Israel failed to do in the wilderness Devil comes to test Jesus, and Jesus stands on the word of God. While being tested by the devil, Jesus defeats Satan by obeying God and God's word. Above his experience, above his passions and desires, his hunger, his thirst, Jesus is what we were supposed to be. Adam was supposed to be the image of God in the world, to bring the light of God into the world, and to obey God, to love God, to enjoy God, to delight in God, and he failed. Israel was supposed to be God's chosen, to bring the light of God into the world, like Adam, ultimately, and Israel fails, and here comes Jesus, the second Adam our true representative, our perfect representative and the true and perfect Israel into the wilderness he goes and he defeats Satan. I've said it to you a bunch of times and I really want you to to grab it because it's so huge. It's so huge. You see Matthew thinking in Isaiah the whole way through. Isaiah is at the bottom of Matthew over and over and over. Matthew is quoting from Isaiah. He's thinking in Isaiah. And then Jesus now is brought up to this great and high mountaintop by Satan, and Satan brings him up there, and he shows him what he came for. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, I'll give them to you all if you just bow down and worship me. No cross, no resurrection, no suffering, none of that. Right now, Jesus, I'll, I'll give you what you came to get. Right now, just worship me. That's all you have to do. And Jesus says, you should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus defeats Satan. He goes away. The angels minister to Jesus. He comes out of the wilderness. And listen, listen, the very first words in Matthew, out of Jesus' mouth when he comes out of the wilderness, listen, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're new to Apologia Church, I'm gonna tell you this very, very important thing. I've said it a lot, but it's so important. Kingdom of heaven for Matthew is a way of not offending Jewish superstition. Kingdom of heaven in Matthew is a way for Matthew to get across the message of the kingdom without offending people because they were very, very superstitious about the name of God in that time. Kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the rule of God, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is telling them, turn from your sin, the rule of God is at hand. It's at the end of the fingers. It's within reach. It entered now. Here it was. It was coming to fruition now. And Jesus goes about in Matthew 4, listen, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Listen, this is probably one of the things we miss in the evangelical church in the West most. The truth about the goodness of the kingdom of God and how that actually is gospel The fact that the Messiah has come and he sits on his throne and he's actually ruling now as king of kings and lord of lords, that's actually good news, that that is gospel. It's gospel, not just going to heaven one day, but it's gospel that Jesus is the king and he rules and reigns now. And so then Jesus now sits in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and he begins to tell them the blessings. Divine happiness upon those who are poor, bankrupt in spirit. Divine happiness upon the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Divine happiness upon those who are persecuted, because they persecuted the prophets before you. Just like that. Divine happiness upon you, and it's so flipped. Everything is different with Jesus. People that have poverty spiritually, people who are meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who are merciful, people who are pure in heart, people who are peacemakers, people who are persecuted. Blessed, blessed, blessed are you. It's the exact opposite of the way the world thinks. But then Jesus does something. He tells them, you, you, the church, the people of God, you are the salt of the earth. You preserve the earth. You're its preservative. You're the light of God into the world." A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. He says, you don't take a light and put it under a basket. You don't do that. You let the light shine so it gives light to everyone in the house. He says, in the same way, you let your light shine so that people see and they give glory to God in heaven. But the amazing thing here is that Jesus is the king. He's proclaiming the good news of his kingdom and he tells his people, you're the salt of the earth. You're going to preserve it. You're going to give it its flavor, and you're going to be the light of the world. And then Jesus now, it's no coincidence that after talking about being salty and light to the world, Jesus actually goes into a discussion about the law. That's not an accident. It's not an accident. Matthew is not just putting this together hodgepodge. Under divine inspiration, we have what is God breathed before us, and he talks about salt and light, and now he goes into a discussion of the law, and I want to talk to you guys about that today. This is an important sermon today, guys, because I'm going to hopefully bring it together for you today. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He lands there. And this is what's significant about that, is that you and I, can have full assurance in this moment with Jesus in Matthew, the way that he talks about the law of God and the kingdom of God. He, in fact, fits the bill of the Messiah. If he spoke about it in any different way, brothers and sisters, you would have to reject him. If Jesus diminished the law of God in the slightest way, you'd have to say, that's the indication that you're not from God. If Jesus didn't have the genealogy that matched That's the way you say, you're not from God. If Jesus had a false prophecy, that's the way you say, you're you're not from God. You're not the Messiah. And in this text right here, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You need to understand a few things. Ready? If you're writing things down, this is where you can write. And I want you to have these down sort of as background noise to everything else I'm going to say to you. So three things I want you to know one in order to understand the significance of what's happening here in Matthew we need to understand first the timing of the kingdom we've spent time here before so I'm not going to unpack it a lot today i just want you to have it so you understand why is it so significant for us and really so glorious that jesus is talking like this about the good news of the kingdom and his law first the timing of the kingdom Daniel chapter 2, I'll give you the whole chapter, read it later. We've already unpacked that together. But in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus comes, Daniel tells you when, did you catch that? When the Messiah's kingdom is going to enter into history. When? And so he has this this explanation to King Nebuchadnezzar about what it's going to look like when Messiah's kingdom comes. And he lays out four four earthly kingdoms that are going to arise before God himself sets up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And the amazing thing is, is when you count down in Daniel's day, four kingdoms from Daniel, it lands on Rome. Four kingdoms, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek kingdom, and then the Roman kingdom. And amazingly, when does Jesus enter in proclaiming God's kingdom as a present reality? When? During the time of Rome. And so when Jesus is speaking this into the hearing of his people, he's speaking it during the time of Rome, which is the fourth kingdom after Babylon. This is the exact timing. The second thing I want you to know is background noise to the whole 517 issue about the law of God is number two, the scope of the kingdom, the scope. it's ex- Where's it going to extend to? What's it mean? What's it going to accomplish? couple things, and we've done these before, so I'm just giving them to you now so you have them. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel's looking in the night visions, and behold, he says, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he says that He came up to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man comes up to God and was presented before him. And it says that he's given a kingdom, dominion, glory. And it says, what about his kingdom? That it has a dominion that will never pass away and a kingdom that's one that will never be destroyed. And you think about Jesus in this book, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The Son of Man, his most His favorite title for himself, son of man. Jesus, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teach them to obey. And Jesus goes up to the Ancient of Days. We also know Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, the Messiah was going to be God himself, El Gibor, the Eternal One, the Father of Eternity, that his kingdom, watch, would increase. And so the growth would be progressive. It wasn't going to drop in history. It was going to grow progressively. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That the zeal of the Lord of hosts would accomplish it. That God was going to do it himself. He was going to make it happen. That's how you know it will happen. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. You can look at Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11 to see more about the kingdom of God, and it's coming into history. But just quickly, I'll say, it contained all the nations. Did you catch that? That's, it's huge. It's so important for you to get that. The Messiah's kingdom was going to be the nations now coming to God. The ends of the earth experiencing God's salvation. Proof? Psalm 22. The passion of the Messiah. He was gonna have his hands and feet pierced. Dogs were gonna surround him, a company of evildoers surrounding him. They were gonna mock him and wag their heads. His heart would be like wax melted within him. They would divide his garments among them, and for his clothing, his clothing, they would cast lots. And after that text in the Psalms, it says, after the passion of the Messiah, it says that all the ends of the earth are going to return. All the families of the earth are going to return and worship God as a result of this Messiah's work. Isaiah 53, the Messiah's redemption was about forgiveness of sin. He was going to come and be pierced through for our transgressions. He'd be crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being would be upon Him, and by His wounds we'd be healed. It says that God, the Lord, was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. He would be an offering for our sin. He would justify the many as He would bear their iniquities. He'd be counted among the rebels. That, brothers and sisters, was written 700 years before Jesus. His his kingdom would be one that was over the whole earth. It would be one that brought salvation to all the families of the earth. It would be one that encompassed the whole world. It would be salvation, redemption, forgiveness. That was the scope of it. But there's more. Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New. It's God's favorite Bible verse. It's his favorite People at the football games are, wa- are waving John 3.16. It's a good verse. Probably doesn't mean what they think it means, but they're waving the, the yeah, John 3.16. Well, maybe you can get extra points with God if you did his favorite verse. one ten one. All God's enemies under his feet. There's probably reasons people don't do that. Um. But Psalm 110.1 is the most popular verse from the old and the new, and it's the Lord said unto my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. And that provides for us the basis of hope that we have for the future of what Jesus the King is going to do in the world. Now, what's the third thing? Here's what you need to know. The law of the kingdom. This is important the law of the kingdom, Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31, God says he'd make a new covenant, a new covenant, not like the old one that his people broke, even though he was their husband. Think about that language. God sees himself as a husband to Israel and they broke covenant with him. They committed spiritual adultery with him. He was going to make a new covenant, and this new covenant, listen, would be one that was internalized with law. The law would be on the hearts of his people. It would be within them, and he would forgive their sins and remember them no more. Everybody was going to know him from the least to the greatest, and there would be a time, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, where nobody would teach their neighbor, know the Lord, because God says, they're all going to know me. Jeremiah 31, 31 says the law is going to be in his people now, in them. No longer on stone tablets, but in them. Ezekiel 36, go read the passage. I want you to see it with your own eyes. We've unpacked it so much, but I'm just reviewing this so you have it. Ezekiel 36, God says what he's going to do in the new covenant is he's going to sprinkle his people with clean water. They'll be clean. He's going to cleanse them of all their idols. He's going to do it. He's going to free them from those idols. He's going to cleanse them from the idols, from that false worship. He's going to put his spirit within his people. He's going to indwell them now. He's going to remove a hard heart of stone and put a heart of flesh there that's soft and tender towards God. And it says, listen, God says that he will, listen, this is powerful, he will cause them, cause them to observe His statutes. That was Ezekiel 36, long before Jesus came. What statutes were in Ezekiel's mind when he wrote that? The law of God, the known law of God. God was going to cause the new covenant people to obey his statutes. Another example is Isaiah 2. I want you to see this one. You got to go there, okay? Isaiah 2, go there quickly. Go there quickly, Isaiah chapter 2. This is a big one. And don't forget, like I said, Matthew is thinking in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go what? The law. Which law? The known law. The law that Jeremiah had. The law that Isaiah had. The law that Ezekiel had. The law. What's the word for law here in the Hebrew? The Torah, out of Zion, out of the people of God, the very presence of the people of God shall go the Torah in the latter days. That's a powerful thing. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So that's the background. Another text you can just go to later is Isaiah 42. We've already had these texts. Isaiah 42, you'll see, and that's a big one, that the Messiah's role in history, what he was gonna do, was he was going to establish justice in the world. So watch. Jesus, according to the Old Testament, this is big. This is like shake up the average American evangelical big. This, this is like probably turn your world upside down and change the way you think kind of big. Isaiah 42. It says the Messiah is going to establish justice on the earth. It's not just about forgiveness of sins. It's not just about heaven one day. God is not going to stop his work until the Messiah has established justice in the world. And it's clear how God does that. We know what his righteous standards are. He's told us. Now let's go to Matthew 5 now. Now that you understand the background, you begin to discover why Matthew 5, 17 through 19 is awesome in terms of us looking at Jesus and saying, You're the one. You fit the bill, you're the promised Messiah. Here we go. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The Greek says, Me namesete. Don't even begin to think. Don't let it enter your mind. Don't even start the thought that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Questions. If Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, then does that mean there are no changes? Right? Because we go, okay, if we take Jesus at his word here, that he didn't come to abolish it, does that mean there are no changes to the law of God? Answer? No. God has not abolished his law as though it was not good. God has brought his law to fulfillment. And here's an example of how God demonstrates a change of administration that he defines. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 onward. God tells us something there that shows us something about those laws and how those laws are no longer something that the Christian is obligated to do. So I want you to see that text, Ephesians chapter 2. This is uh, the only example I think I'll give for the moment about how the laws actually no longer apply in the same way. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11, listen closely. Therefore, remember that at one time you you Gentiles, that's non-Jews, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. I need you to memorize that because someday I'm going to bring that back to you. And it's going to really matter. Trust me. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Messiah Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now stop. Stop. Did you hear that? You once were this, were what? You were aliens. You were separated from Christ. And you were separated from the Commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants, plural of promise. But what? But now, because of Jesus, you have been brought near, brothers and sisters, to what? The Commonwealth of Israel to the covenants of promise, to Christ, and now you have hope and God. Now, just quickly, because I can do it as an aside, what does Paul say about Gentile Christians here and Israel? They've been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. So what does that mean? Jews and Gentiles are now what? One Israel. One people of God. That's what the text says. Now listen closely. He says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Now stop for a second. What does that mean? It means that in the law, you had ordinances, holiness code, that were meant to separate Jew from Gentile. It made Jews look weird. There are local churches that look weird, and they look weird for all the wrong reasons, right? Right? Israel was given specific holiness code to teach them about holiness and being separate from the world. And so when a Gentile saw a Jew, they were like, you eat different, you dress different, you worship different, you worship even smells different. It really, if you would have gone in Israel in the temple, it would have smelled a certain way. Everything was different. And what was God teaching them? That those things saved them? no. He was teaching them separateness, holiness, distinctness from the world. And ultimately, the holiness code was pointing to the holiness of Messiah. Why do we no longer do the holiness code? Atheists love this one. They love it. As a matter of fact, if you are on social media, you've probably seen this come along your path, right? Christians say homosexuality is sin, and they oppose homosexuality. But ask your Christian friend, do you eat shellfish? Do you have blended cotton in, your, in your, your clothes? And they start going through the holiness code, and they're like, gotcha, got him. That's what they say. And they think they've delivered a devastating blow to Christians, and it, what it demonstrates is that being an atheist dramatically impacts your ability to read the Bible. Because Ephesians chapter 2 is God defining what those laws were about and saying, now that Christ has come and made us into one new man, those laws are no longer necessary. Now stop. This is important. It's not saying, it does not logically follow that those laws were stupid or that they were meaningless. They meant Something. I'll give you an example, and this wasn't prepared, but I think it's good to do. The Apostle Paul tells Christians in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, you were to purge your house of leaven, right? It was a pretty crazy process. They had to go through their house and like dig out all the leaven that might have been around, and they tried to scoop it out of their house. It was symbolic of removing, in reality, sin from their household, and they had to do this whole process. It was really the holiness code stuff, getting all this stuff out. It was really a pattern of pointing to really the holiness of Jesus and all these different things. But Paul, in the New Testament, doesn't say, oh, we know that was stupid. You don't have to do that anymore, thankfully. He calls Christ the Passover, So that's fulfilled in Jesus. He's still our Passover, and he tells them to remove from yourselves, Christians now, the leaven of malice. So watch, the law meant something, and watch, it still does. The law still applies. Only, we don't do it today in the rudimentary way that it was done with just simple yeast that was pointing to something. Now he says, Remove from yourself the leaven of malice. So, guess what? Still have a Passover, and we still remove leaven, but now we do it in the way that is complete. The shadow is now moved away because of the substance. The reality now is here. Okay. Next. So are we under law? Answer, no! We are not under law if you mean that we are under the law with an obligation to fulfill it for salvation. We are not under law in the way Israel was under law where you had people who were dead and alienated from God who had a law before them that was outside them on stone tablets they could not fulfill Christ had not accomplished salvation we are not under law Romans 6:14 we are under grace now watch we are not under law now but under grace because ready we are in Christ Romans 6 is about watch do we then continue in sin so that grace may increase May it never be. He says, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it? And he says, watch, you have died with Christ and you've been raised to newness of life with him. You are not under law, but under grace. You're forgiven. You're alive from the dead. You're no longer dead and alienated from God, hostile towards God in Adam, in the flesh. You're alive in Jesus Filled with the Spirit of God, the law no longer condemns you. Romans 3, by the way, at the very end says, do we then make void the law through faith? He says, by no means. We, through faith, he says, establish the law. Question that comes up when we look at Jesus saying he didn't come, don't even think he came to abolish the law. Question we should ask is this, how is the law... Relevant to New Covenant Christians. Don't you want to know that? I want to know that. <laughs> How is the law relevant to New Covenant Christians? If you're taking notes, these are important ones to take. Because we're done today with these, this section of Scripture. How is the law relevant to New Covenant Christians? A, it's now in our hearts. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. If you had one text alone that proves... God's law is relevant in new covenant. It's the premier text about the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, it's now in our hearts. We now, watch, have an internal motivation to do it. We don't have, listen, we don't have a guy coming down who's a sinner off a mountain with stone tablets, with law written on them, pressing down upon people who can't fulfill it. You have, watch, a high priest forever in heaven that makes intercession for you. You have a once-for-all sacrifice that's complete for all time. You are indwelt by God's spirit with his law now written on your hearts. Internal motivation to do it. Next, we are now enabled to do it. And I got, I, you have to see this. You seriously gotta see this to believe it, okay? Go to Romans 8. Go to Romans chapter 8. Now this is a text that's quoted often By Calvinists. That's us, by the way. Okay. It's quoted often by Calvinists to point to the fact that those who are dead spiritually are unable to please God, to to, to believe God, to worship God, to obey God. But think about it in terms of the law of God discussion. Watch Romans 8: There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, watch, he just talked about that in Romans 5, those who are in Adam, those who are dead, those who are alienated from God, those who don't know Jesus, they're not in Jesus, those who are in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Did you catch that? Guys, this is what's so significant about being a Christian. The law does not condemn you. It's in you now. You're no longer facing God as a person who's alienated from God enemy of God, with his law outside pressing down on you, now you are indwelled by God's spirit, alive, no longer in Adam, with the gift of eternal life, and now you are no longer in the place where you once were, alienated from God, in the flesh, hostile, where you cannot please God, you cannot submit to his law, now you, by his spirit, can. You can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, and you might be thinking, well, what's that? What's that? Romans 13.10, what's the righteous requirement of the law? Love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Fundamentally, listen, how do Christians today actually accomplish the law of God? Is it because it's a written code? They go, yes, I did it, check, check, check. No, you've been freed from its condemnation. It's in you now. You want to do it. And now you fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which is to love God, love your neighbor. Love fulfills the law. Christians are to love because fundamentally, when you love, you fulfill God's law. People talk about the law of Christ. That's the law of Christ. It's the law of God, properly applied and obeyed. Now listen. Finally, this is big. Wow. This is a big one. So I want you to see it. 1 John 5.3. That's um, next to Revelation, not Revelations. Revelation, 1 John 5.3. This is a big one. I'm going to go ahead and read from the beginning. And this is convicting. Kids, listen. This is so important. Kids, it's important since you're in this room that you reflect on what God says to you. Church is not about your parents. Church is about God meeting you and you meeting God right now. And this is what God says to all of us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we, we know That we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Did you, you hear that? Love, 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 love God, love his kids. Love God, love his kids. Love God, love his kids. How do you do that? Love God. How do you love him? You keep his commandments. And guess what? As a Christian, his commandments are not burdensome. Like, here's the thing, ready? I'll tell you if you're not a Christian. If I say to you, if I say to you, no, you cannot, according to God, have sex before a marriage, and you're like, eh, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus. Not a Christian, In order to come to, in order to to say you know Christ, you can't live this sinful lifestyle and live there, like actually own it. And like, that's like your, now your profession to do it. You can't say you know God, love God and hang on to those things. Does that mean that Christians don't fall into sin? Of course not. I fall into sin every single day. Ask my wife. Seriously, and so does she. We grow together. We sin together as a family. My family, we're still being sanctified ourselves. We grow in Christ. It's not about not sinning, but here it is, here's what it is about. If you can live a life of perpetual sin, this says you don't know God. Don't fool yourself. Because listen, if God's commands are a burden to you, you don't know him. The text says that. And how can I prove it to you? Because in the new covenant, God said he was going to do something in me. He was going to indwell me. He was going to purify me. He's going to put his law in me. So if the law of God I see and I despise it, it means you need to repent and believe the gospel. Because if God's laws are burdensome to you, John says you don't know him. It doesn't mean as a Christian, you're not going to struggle with sin and war with sin. It means as a Christian, you're going to struggle with sin and war with sin. That's the point. That's how we relate to the law of God today. Okay, quickly. Now, this should be kind of easy. I'll go fast with this one because I think it's pretty simple to catch. I think we all understand this. But I got to tell you, man, is it rampant out there with misinterpretations of this. Are you ready? We're there now. We actually are on the next part of... We're on 517B. (laughs) Do not think that I... it's, It's obviously very important to me. Okay, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, we're there. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that he didn't come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Are you ready? I'm going to read this in the way that most people today actually understand it. Are you ready? This is not the text, but I'm going to read to you the most common understanding of Jesus' words, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So not abolish, but fulfill. The common evangelical in the pews today thinks that that means do not think, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to bring them to an end. Did you hear that? Honestly. That is the typical interpretation of this passage. Jesus didn't come to abolish them, just to bring them to an end. I'm sorry, that's the same thing. Now, if we can hang on to an inconsistency like that, we have big problems as a church. So, what does it mean to fulfill them? The Greek word is ple-ra-o. If you wanted to write it down, P L E R O O Omega, which is a long O, plei-ra-o. Now, the word can mean, in Greek, to establish or confirm. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in his commentary on Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom, on page 52, he writes of this word, this passage, he, Jesus, listen, took care to revise and reform the laws of men. Did you catch that? Jesus revised and reformed the laws of men. In other words, he corrected them. But the law of God, he established and confirmed. So for Spurgeon, when he saw the Greek word plerao, he said that Jesus established or confirmed. That's how he fulfills the law. Now listen, another page, 53 Listen to Spurgeon, I think it's excellent what he says here, his treatment. He said, Jesus establishes in the deepest sense all that is written in the Holy Scripture and puts a new fullness into it. On page 53, he says, our king has not come to abrogate the law, but, listen, to confirm and, this is big, reassert it. In Bonson's book, Dr. Greg Bonson's book, which is an unbelievable exegesis of this passage, the fullest I've ever seen, ever, in any commentary on Matthew that I have, and I have probably 20 commentaries on Matthew, if not more. Nobody has dealt with this passage in the full way that Bonson did. And Bonson's part of plerao is, he says the word there has to mean confirm as Spurgeon said it. Examples, if you're writing this down or you want to listen to it later in the audio and go through it, I'll give you the examples. You don't have to go there exactly now. James 2.33, Revelation 3.2, Romans 15.19-20, Colossians 1.25. I'm going to give you one example and we'll go to it together to show you that the word play ra'o. Means can mean to confirm or establish. I'm going to show you one example, okay? We all following now? You guys with me? Jesus says He's going to fulfill the law. My argument here, like Spurgeon, is his fulfilling the law is His confirming it and reasserting it, His establishing it in the proper way. So go to the text quickly, to, I'll show you the word there, what it means. Revelation chapter two, not Revelation two, sorry. James chapter 2. James 2. James 2, verse 23. Actually, we're going to start right above it. And 22. He's talking about Abraham. Now, watch. Go in your minds for a second. Abraham in Genesis 15 6, he does nothing. Circumcision isn't a thing yet. He doesn't have Isaac. He believes God. By faith, and God credits to him righteousness. Guys, ready? What did he do? He believed. No works of law. No, he has faith. And God credits to him righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Now listen to what James says here. In James 2, it says, You see That faith was active along with his works, and faith was, watch, completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What should you be looking for here? Ready? In verse 23, the word fulfilled. What does it mean his faith was fulfilled? What does it mean that it was fulfilled, the scripture was fulfilled? Well, look right above it you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was what? Completed. So completed or established or confirmed, there's an example of ra'o meaning completed, established, confirmed. Some of you guys are like, why is it important? It's very important for anybody who listens to this that disagrees. The text says what it says. Other Greek examples from the era that Bonson points to in play Rao fulfilled being established or confirmed. From the Septuagint and Apocrypha. Apocrypha is not the Bible, by the way. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. 3rd Kings 1:14, 13.33, first 1 Maccabees 2:55, 4 Maccabees 12:14, 1 Kings 23, Song of Solomon 5:14, Numbers 788. Some of you guys might be thinking, well, I don't know what to do about that. Here's what you do with it. You understand something, that the word Ra'o has a pedigree. It has a semantic domain. To fulfill can mean to establish or confirm. Modern, sorry, past theologians that took this view of fulfillment by Jesus into establish or confirm. John Calvin, kind of a big deal, okay. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, another one. Modern theologians that agree with this understanding of play by Jesus in Matthew 5, John Murray, Herman Ritterboss, and Bonson says this therefore, the sense of confirming, validating, Ratifying, establishing has been recognized as applying to fulfill, in Matthew 5:17, by past and present scholars. So what's it mean? When Jesus says that He has not come to abrogate the law or the prophets, he has not come to abrogate them, but to fulfill them. Play Rao there, I believe, along with Calvin, along with Spurgeon and many others that the sense meant by Jesus there was to establish or confirm it. Jesus, watch, fulfills it in that he brings it to its intended position. He does not abrogate it and destroy it, take it apart. He actually now fulfills it and brings it to its completion and confirmation. This is what the law really means This is what it really pointed to. This is the substance of the law. I'm the priest. This is the temple. Here's the sacrifice. This is what the leaven meant. This is how you're to live. These are God's standards. And here's how you actually accomplish it by me. So, how is the law fulfilled? Are you ready? One, it's in us now, it's in you. Two, we can fulfill its righteous requirements. I need your help on this. I got to know that you're with me on this because this is significant. And, and I think we can move on past this if we got this. How is God's righteous requirement fulfilled in us? By what? Love. Love. What? Well, listen, what does Jesus say? The guy asks him, Master, what's the greatest commandment in God's law? And Jesus says what? One, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says all of the law and the prophets are built upon those. Love God, love your neighbor. And now, listen, that's in you. Can I say something to you right now? The greatest identification in your own life and mine, that you truly belong to God, that you truly belong to him, is that love now is within you. You have the ability now, supernaturally, to love God's people. and, and, and other, Before you got here and in Christ, this was like a strange crowd. These are weird people, right? And, and now all of a sudden you have a supernatural, divine love for God's people that doesn't make any sense. Honest to God, it's really, really strange. Like I can go, like I went to California. I went to California recently to the Bonson Conference. I went to California, and I, and, and I walk into a church that's a Presbyterian church with Christians from across the country I'd never met in my life, and there was such a deep affection and love and concern and, and, and such a deep intimacy with people I, I didn't even know. But they love the same Savior as me, and they were bought by the same blood, and there's an immediate connection that is supernatural. There's a love that's very strange. It's a love for each other that's so strange. It doesn't really make any sense. It's the ability to forgive somebody that otherwise doesn't deserve it. And you can do that now because you've been bought by Christ, redeemed and washed, and you recognize that the God who is love, who is holy, had such deep affection for you, even though you're such a rebel, even though you deserve hell. And he came and he chased you down, and he purchased you, and he loved you. And now as a Christian, you're saved and redeemed, and now you can do that for others because you recognize your place. It was him who chased you. Not you, him. It was him who bought you. It was him who paid everything to own you, to bring you, to wash you. And now as a Christian, you can do that. You fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. How? Love God, love neighbor. All the law and the prophets built upon That, how is the law fulfilled or established and confirmed? It no longer condemns us, ever, ever. Not now, not tomorrow, not a million years from now. The law doesn't condemn you. Why? Galatians 3. You're under the curse of the law to fulfill all of it, if that's how you want to get right with God. Jesus went to that cross, and he became a curse for us. So that in him now you would be given the righteousness of God. God's justice satisfied in Jesus. The law no longer condemns you ever. You're declared righteous. You have peace with God. The law no longer condemns you. Romans 6, you are in Christ, dead and alive. Now in him, joined together with him. The shadow and the substance show the fulfillment or the establishment or the confirmation of the law. Why? Listen, the law of God. Are you ready? This is huge. The law of God is still abiding and relevant today, but in its true, confirmed, and established way. How? You still have a temple? We still have a temple? Yep. It's one that's not made with hands that can never be destroyed. You still have a priest? Yep. And he's a priest who will never die, who has no sin, and lives now forever to make intercession for you. You still have a sacrifice? Yep. Only now, it's not in the rudimentary way it was where it was with a bull or a goat or a bird or some other animal that could never really take away your sins. And it's not done Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement every year, reminding you constantly of the fact that you are a sinner before God. Now it's once for all, able to perfect forever those who draw near to God in Christ. You still have a temple. You still have a sacrifice. You still have a priest. And you still have God's commandments. And he says to you, you want to show that you love me? Obey me. Obey what? His commandments. And they're not burdensome. To you. Why? Because you're alive. Why? Because you're indwelt by him. Why? Because he has written the law on your inward parts now. The law, Jesus fulfilled it in establishing it and confirming it, reasserting it, showing its real purpose, taking what was once a shadow, and now his substance actually completing it and fulfilling it. And the law of God, brothers and sisters, is still relevant today. Okay, here's a so what. You know how like in, so- in the Psalms, Psalm 1, it says, uh, it says in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, right? And it says, it says, what about the law of God? It says, in his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by what? You guys know it? Streams of water. The fruit will not wither. It'll produce fruit. It, it, uh, the, the leaf will not wither. It'll, it'll produce fruit in due season. It's an, it's an amazing thing. You know why? Because I think that as, as um, modern evangelicals, that text has been nothing more than beautiful prose and poetry. Why? Because I'm willing to bet that the average evangelical today does not spend day and night meditating on the law of God. Law of God. Like if you find a bird, you're allowed to eat the eggs, but you can't kill the mother. You're like, let's just meditate on that. There's a blessing attached to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, see, those laws actually teach kids and teach people to honor their father and their mother from the lowest place, even to the animals, to our fathers and mothers, and God promises a blessing upon that. The society so honors their fathers and mothers that they actually do it with the creatures, even with little creatures. That's in the law of God. That we even have laws of God that we think are so insignificant today, like, don't muzzle the ox while it treads. You're like, I don't have an ox, so I'm good, right? Well, God says, look, if the beast itself has a right to food, don't kill it, then you are to be paid for your work, and you must be paid for your work. That principle of law applies to all of society. So people who actually promise wages to people and don't pay them are wicked people in God's eyes you ever have someone do that to you? You see, the law of God applies to all of life and God says in Psalm in the Psalms that the person who meditates in God's law day and night is blessed. The law of God is relevant in the new covenant. Are we saved by it? Never. You can never be saved by the law of God. It'll justify nobody ever. And to attempt to be saved by the law of God is wicked. It's a false gospel. And and we ought to give our whole lives to warring against gospels like that. However, as redeemed believers, we relate to God and his law in a completely different way now. It means something. It's still relevant. It was relevant to Jesus. It ought to be relevant to us. And if, listen... If you were to say, Jeff, I'm not sure I agree with your exegesis here, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I would say this, if you don't quite agree with what I just said, if you don't think that it fits the text, I would ask you to read the next couple verses where Jesus then goes on to say that if anybody teaches anyone else to disobey even the least of these commandments, they will be called least in the kingdom of God. Jesus so upheld the law of God that you and I are to see in him that he truly is the promised Messiah. Because the Messiah had to bring the law into the world in the way that God had actually intended it to be obeyed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you bless the message that went out. I pray, God, that through my own shortcomings, And through all the ways, Lord, I know that I could have done more. I just pray that you would take what was preached and you would use it to change us and, Lord, your church and the world. God, lift us up, grant us grace, grant us, Lord, a new ability to see, God, your work has finished on our behalf, that we are no longer condemned, and yet, Lord, we see your law in its perfect way. Jesus, you said, if you love me, obey me. Help us. Help God for those in this room who don't know you. Grant to them repentance and faith. And for those of us that do, give to us new eyes, new ears, new strength to love you, to pursue you, and to grow, and God, to really understand, God, the goodness of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. God. Well, there you go. Matthew 5, 17, and four messages. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to do the Lord's table now. Um, So what I'm going to ask for you guys to do is if you have turned from sin and believed in Christ and you trust in Him and you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're part of God's new covenant community, you're in Christ, baptized, I want you to Get before God, talk to God, ask Him to reveal to you what you need to confess and turn over to Him, and come to the table in a worthy way. If you're not in Christ, please do not come to this table. This table is for those who know Christ and a part of His new covenant. So if you want to know Christ, you need to know that He is the Messiah, He's God in the flesh, He lived a sinless and righteous life He died for sinners, and he rose from the dead, and he calls you to turn from sin, to come and trust in him, to put your faith in him for forgiveness and salvation, the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. You must come. You can believe from right where you sit, but if you're not in Christ, please do not take this table. Parents, please be wise with your children. If you know that they have made professions of faith and they belong to Christ, the table is open to them. But do, parents, be wise with allowing your children to come to the table if they have not come to Christ. And it's a great opportunity to talk to them about that, about the gospel.